0: Neil, dear brother, it's great to see you again. And uh, uh, you are the, well, I don't need to tell you, I need to tell them. Uh, Neil is the director of Medair in the UK, which we've had a relationship with, I guess, for about 15 or 20 years. Uh, Some of you will remember people like Andy Tanswell, um, uh, Fee Fee Pettit, uh, and others. Uh, and uh, in this congregation now. I saw Gloria this morning. Gloria works with you, doesn't she? she does. and, and she's just about to go out to South Sudan. Was she in the first service or are you here behind a pillar, Gloria? Put up your hand if you are. We'll hear about that uh, later. Uh, I don't want to steal any more of your thunder uh, because you're known by many of us. Tell us about what's going on. Sure. Good. Oh, why didn't why I pray for him? Why didn't you, you reach out a hand towards Neil? And let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless Neil this morning and make him a blessing to us and to others across the world in due course as a result. So fill him with your word, Lord. Fill him with your spirit. Fill him with joy and uh, with conviction. Uh, May he know he's at home among us. Thank you for the work of Medair and our links with Medair over the years, and we pray that those links may be revitalized, renewed, strengthened this day, and that we may play our part in a global church and world. Amen. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. And um, as Paul has said, we, Medair and uh, this church have had a relationship for a number of years, and I want to thank you for that commitment that you've given over that, those uh, many years. The commitment to pray, the commitment to support financially, the commitment to send people to some pretty difficult situations to provide humanitarian support and relieve people's suffering. And this morning we're, we're gonna be thinking about refugees. Uh, you may well have seen outside there is a, a, a refugee tent some of the Remarkables are having that refugee experience now even as um, as I'm speaking here, and I want to encourage uh, all of you to have a look at what we're doing, take a bit of time to uh, experience uh, this for yourselves, because MEDA does an awful lot of work um, with refugees. And um, you'll see some words have just come up on the screen, uh, words like displaced person, refugee, migrant, immigrant, asylum seeker, stateless person, visitor. I'm sure these are words that are very familiar to you. They're, they're commonplace in our culture. They do mean different things. A visitor is different from a uh, migrant or a refugee. But one of, one of the things that these words have in common is that they are highly political and emotionally charged. I'm sure you've been following the news And we hear in the news daily about mass migration, big uh, people movements, whether it's this caravan that's heading relentlessly towards America, or whether it's those who are trying to get across borders into mainland Europe, mainland Europe. But I think one of the things that always comes across when I hear these stories on the news is that the narrative is never positive. It is always negative. There is an underlying negativity around the news stories, the media, the conversation that goes on about um, migrants, immigrants, displaced people. And the the two responses, the two elements to this narrative are these people are not like me, and that these people are a problem. These people are not like me, these people are a problem. So what is the scale of this problem, if we want to use that language for a moment? Well, in 2017, 68.5 million people were forcibly displaced. That is more than the population of the United Kingdom. Let's just try and get our heads around that for a moment. If you imagine the whole of the population of the United Kingdom, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, England, in 2017, all of those people would have experienced some kind of act of violence, some kind of conflict, being forcibly moved from their homes, displaced from their homes, from their possessions, from the place of security, experiencing some kind of trauma as a result of that violence to be taken somewhere else to be moved to a place that is not their home. More than the population of this country. And what's even more shocking is that more than half of those are under the age of 18. So technically children. So, you know, millions of young people experiencing the trauma of conflict and displacement. Now when we think about the number of refugees, and as I said, refugees are are different from displaced people. A significant number of those forcibly displaced will be displaced to other parts of their, their, their country. But those who are refugees, more than half come from three countries, Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan. So in Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan, here we're talking about millions of people having that experience of conflict forcibly being moved displaced from their country and these are places where medair works we have long-standing programs uh, in syria long-standing programs in afghanistan long-standing programs in south sudan and in certainly in afghanistan and south sudan one of the major problems in those countries right at this moment in time is food insecurity. There's acute and chronic malnutrition across Afghanistan, and South Sudan is technically in a famine situation. These are ongoing scenarios. So people are being moved from places where they have nothing to places where they have even less. That's the extreme nature when we talk about uh, refugees around the world. We think about Syrian refugees. We know that most Syrian refugees are living in Lebanon, Jordan, or Turkey. And their experience is like the one that is going on outside at the moment, in that tent. Many Syrian refugees have been in Lebanon for five, six, seven years now. Many live in the Bekar Valley in in informal tented settlements, in tents just like the one that is outside. Now, I wonder if you could imagine five winters in a tent. That's the experience for many uh, tens of thousands of, of Syrian refugees. That feels like a hopeless situation. So what does hope look like for a refugee? Well, hope looks like somewhere to live. Hope looks like access to clean water. Hope looks like material needs being met, access to healthcare. That's what hope looks like. The stuff that you and I take for granted every day. That's what hope looks like for refugees. So what does the Bible tell us about refugees. Now, I did some extensive preparation for these talks this morning, and I spent many hours flicking through every single page of the Bible, studying it in great detail, and I couldn't find the word refugee anywhere. The word refugee doesn't... um, You won't find it in the Bible. Now, I might have missed it. My speed reading is not as great as some. But what you will find in the Bible, and the Bible has a lot to say about is the whole idea of strangers and foreigners. If we start in the Old Testament for a moment, we will see that uh, there are many instructions from God to the people of Israel about how they should respond to strangers and foreigners. Let me read a couple of verses to you. First of all, Exodus 23 verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19 verse 34 says this, the foreigners residing amongst you must be treated as native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So just in those two verses, and we could have picked, I could have picked many more, is this identification, this idea of identifying with a foreigner and a stranger. Identifying them because that was the experience of the uh, people of Israel. The second thing that we see uh, within these verses, and we can see it littered throughout Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the the, uh, the law, we see that the response to foreigners should be the the same as the response to the poor. And why is that? Well, because a foreigner's experience tends to be one of poverty, of homelessness, of lack of means, of lack of access to the basic stuff of life. And the law, speaking about the response to the poor, that's the instruction that is given to the people of Israel in terms of their response to foreigners. Treat them in the same way that you would treat the poor. Back to these words. Refugee, displaced person, migrant, immigrant, asylum seeker, visitor, stateless person. These are the strangers and the foreigners of today. They are the modern-day equivalent of um, what the Old Testament was talking about when it was referring to strangers and foreigners. And they have the same kinds of needs as those the people of Israel were instructed to provide for. They're usually homeless. They have limited financial means. And they find themselves very much as outsiders, on the margins, on the edge, looking for community, looking for security, looking for assistance, looking for their needs to be met. Jesus picks this up in the New Testament, and we can see it in his Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we can see it littered through his parables— and this New Testament response that Jesus embodies is very much countercultural. It challenges the negative narrative. Remember, I said at the start, there's two themes that come up when, in the narrative that we hear: is that these people are not like us, and these people are a problem. Well, Jesus challenges that. He goes right to the heart of that. He's, he says, these people are like me, and these people are not a problem. Jesus uses the language of being brothers and sisters, and we've heard that already this morning, the idea that we are brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in a, in a global sense as being part of humanity, and brothers and sisters with our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. It's a narrative, uh, it's an image that is, that is writ large throughout uh, the New Testament. But there's also another uh, narrative, another image that gets picked up in the New Testament about followers of Christ. And it is the idea of being strangers or foreigners. It's one we don't hear about very much, it's not talked about very often. But when we look at the letters that Paul writes, particularly at the letter to the Ephesians, he talks about as we become citizens of the, king, uh, of the kingdom, we move from being um, part of the world to being part of the kingdom of God. And we become a stranger and a foreigner to the world. It's this idea that we're supposed to live differently, counterculturally, being salt, being light, being an ambassador of hope. We become foreign and strange to the ways of the world. And we become. Um, part of the kingdom of God and encouraged to adopt the way uh, of the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. So what should members of his household, what should the response be of the members of the God's household to refugees? Well, let me share you uh, this story. This week I was with um, a Lebanese pastor friend of mine. He uh, runs a church in Beirut, downtown Beirut, a very poor part of uh, Beirut. And uh, he welcomes in Syrian refugees. In fact, his church is full of Syrian refugees. They um, come into his church, he preaches the good news. And Syrian refugees are getting saved. He provides them with some uh, discipleship and then they leave because they're connected with the United Nations resettlement program. And he tells the stories of how Syrian refugee families have come into his church and got saved and now are living in Canada, living in Germany, living in Italy. God using these refugee families to go to the very ends of the earth. And then he tells me his own personal story. Because Syria was at war with Lebanon not too many years ago. And my pastor friend had a house on the hills overlooking Beirut. And he tells the story of how the Syrian military came into his home and forced him out of his his home, took over his his house in the mountains, in the hills, and turned it into a gun emplacement. And how they used his home to um, scatter bullets, rain bullets down on his friends and his family, his Lebanese brothers and sisters. And it begs the question for me, I I, I said to him, so so you're you're welcoming Syrian refugees into your church, but only a few years ago, they took away your home and used it as a means of violence against your brother and sister. And he gives me a very matter-of-fact answer. He goes, yes, of course. And then I asked him, I say this, I said, but surely some of those refugees that are coming into your church could have been members of the military forces that took your home and used it to enact violence upon your brothers and sister. And he says, yes, that that is the case. And I said, so why would you invite them into your church? And he looked at me puzzled. And he said, well, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? They're my brother. They're my sister. I am a citizen of the kingdom. I'm part of the household of God. Why wouldn't I invite them in? Jesus picks this analogy up when he speaks about, uh, uses a parable at the end of uh, the book of Matthew. It's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's one of my favorite passages, and we find this verse, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let me read from it to you. Starting at Matthew chapter 25. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for me, for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now there's a couple of things I want to pick up here. Did you hear that phrase halfway through that passage? The righteous? Just a couple of words, the righteous. But it's a biblical phrase, it's, a, it's a, a phrase that describes those who are followers of Christ. And as we think about those who are followers of Christ, we see through the New Testament that followers of Christ are called the children of God, they're called Jesus' brothers. And his sisters. The the idea of being the righteous means that we are part of God's family. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. We are his kith. We are his kin. But Jesus also uses the language of brothers and sisters when he talks about the least. And who are in that list? Well, the hungry. The thirsty, those who needed clothes, those who were in prison, and who else? The stranger. And what Jesus says is, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He identifies with the stranger. He sees them as his brother and sister. He identifies with us. We are his brothers and sisters. We are part of that household. And what is the expectation of that household, of his brothers and sisters? To reach out to the least of the brothers and sisters. It's the family business. Jesus wants us involved in the family business. And what's that family business look like? Well, it's bringing hope to the stranger. Reaching out to the marginalized so what does that look like for us and let me bring this down to us now our kind of personal response well let me say this when we think about our response to those who are on the outside, the stranger, the refugee, I would say it starts with prayer. And maybe the first prayer that we need to ask is, soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts, Lord. I've talked about that negative narrative. These people are not like me. These people are a problem. Well, we... We're part of this world. We live in this world. We're not, we're exposed to that narrative. We can absorb that narrative. That can be part of our own mindset. So maybe the first response that Christ wants us to make is to come to him and say, soften our hearts, soften my heart. Maybe the next response is, Lord, fill us with compassion. Fill us with compassion and help us to see those who are strangers in the way that you see them. Help us to begin to see that those who are on the outside, who are marginalized, who are suffering as a result of this violent persecution that we've, we've talked about, this violent displacement, who have had things that have been, all at their, their worldly goods taken away from them and placed in a situation of vulnerability and hopelessness, help us to see those people as my brothers, my sisters. And maybe the next thing that we need to ask is, Lord, what are you asking of me? What are you asking of me? This verse in James, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. It comes in a passage which is paraphrased as being hearers and doers. And James's instruction is, don't just be hearers of the word but do something. Allow the Word of God to change us and to move us to action. So maybe the last prayer is, Lord, what are you asking of us? For some, it might be to provide some financial support. For others, it might be to go. But one thing that God asks all of us is to pray, is to pray for those who are suffering, is to pray for our brothers and sisters, is to cry out to God of heaven to meet their needs. So maybe in these last moments, let's take a moment of quiet. And if we feel that we need to ask those things of God, let's do it. Soften my heart, Lord. Fill me with compassion. Help me to see refugees as my brother and my sister. And dear Lord, speak to me. Let me know what you're asking of me so that I may be a servant of the King and that I may well reach out to the least of my brothers and my sisters as an act of service to you. Amen.